This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. So today I sat down with an amazing pair of food folks, Chandra Ram and David Lawrence. So Chandra is the editor at Plate Magazine, which is a food magazine for chefs. And it's something that I read all the time. And I look at their online recipes, which are very good. A little bit about Chandra. She has a degree in journalism from Loyola in Chicago and culinary arts from the CIA. She also is the author of The Complete Indian Instapot Cookbook and the co-author of Korean Barbecue with Chef Bill Kim. Chandra has won multiple awards for her writing and editing work, including a James Beard nomination, an IACP nomination, several Jesse H. Neal Awards and Folio Awards, an Association of Food Journalists Award, and the McAllister Editorial Fellowship. She's just really lovely to talk to. I'm sure you will see that as well. And Chef David Lawrence. David, I've known for a while. He's the executive chef and and co-owner of 1300 on Fillmore. And he really has made a huge mark on the Bay Area. He is from London. He worked under two of England's most celebrated chefs, the Rue Brothers. And so I talked with Chandra and David about the state of the restaurant industry right now. It's an interesting time for restaurants in the United States and I'm sure the world. We had a great conversation about things that we've noticed and things that hopefully you will find interesting to listen to. So with that, let's go. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Chanda Ram, editor from Plate Magazine. Hi. It's great to be here. Thank you. Welcome. And Chef David Lawrence, restaurateur. Hi, Matt. Great to see you again. Good to see you. It's been a minute. Uh Yeah. So we are talking today about current things going on in the restaurant world, hot topics, taking temperatures, and we're just, we're really going to, going to dive in. Let's talk about staffing. I think staffing is one of the most critical part, right? Of the restaurant, so so let's talk staffing. You want to oh, yeah. dive in? So you know, I don't have, own my restaurants anymore, but I have some at the airport. I have partnerships in. I just spent the whole summer helping the restaurant at the airport out because they can't find staff, they can't find managers, can't find cooks. It's a big issue in our industry, and it's one that I don't know how we solve right now. You know, unemployment at the is at a low. People jumping into jobs like cooking, restaurants, and manual labor like this is 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 not appealing for them at this moment. Yes, that's my question, right? Why, right? Why why is it so hard to find staffing right now? I think it's much easier to jump into an Uber and make a couple bucks or a couple hours than get into a restaurant and work really hard and be a chef. You think uh, people are lazy? 
I think I, I, now I'm just, I sound like I'm like nine no, years old no, because no, we always no. look this at the This will be the portion generation. of the interview where we all sound very <laughs> right. old yeah, because right. we're going to complain we always, about right. the youngs real yeah. quick. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. We always complain about people being the the next generation coming up being lazier than what we did. Right. But there are, you know, jobs have changed and the options for their jobs are completely different from what I had when I was young. So if I had the options, would I be a chef? Probably. Because I always liked cooking, mm. but many, many young people have better choices now. Mm. Well, and it's like everyone wants to be a chef, but no one wants to be a prep cook. Mm. Or, I mean, my first cooking job was omelet girl on the mm. buffet line at, at Embassy Suites. Omelets are hard. Oh my omelets God, yes. are hard. <laughs> yeah. And I was making omelets nonstop to yeah. practice at home yeah. and then just had like a refrigerator full of omelets. <laughs> and then was making omelets and sort of like, oh, okay, well... There's a lull in breakfast traffic, so I'll do some prep work. And mm. because I'm a dinosaur, I was of the generation where you you clocked out and you went back in the kitchen and said, let me help prep for dinner. Let me learn how to make duck confit or let mm. me learn how to do that. But really about 10 years ago, there was a boom in uh, culinary school attendance. And suddenly there was Le Cordon Bleu all over the country and there were all these culinary schools and everyone wanted to be cooks, except that they actually didn't want to be cooks. Mm-hmm. And the schools, I feel, were not doing a great job of weeding people out mm-hmm. before they jumped in and you know incurred a lot of debt to mm-hmm. go out and get a minimum wage job with no health insurance, but a guarantee that you would cut or burn yourself or both. <laughs> right, right, right. So I think that it's something I hear from chefs everywhere. Mm. It is every now and again, it's really funny, but sad that I'll see chefs celebrating on social media that they're fully staffed at their restaurants wow. for the first time in years. Wow. But it is, it is national. I yeah. think that you guys have it particularly hard in San Francisco because I don't know how anyone in an hourly line cook position at that wage can afford to live within an hour of the city. Yeah, no. Well, what they do is they have two jobs. And right. so what you have someone coming to you at seven in the morning, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, who's really tired because they worked the night before and they're given their all. And then they leave you about three o'clock and they go to the next job. Mm-hmm. So if you're receiving that person at five o'clock, now you have someone who's very tired, mm-hmm. who's trying to do the food as best they can. Mm-hmm. Prone to injury. Absolutely. Yeah. They're much more prone to injury, much more prone to making mistakes. Mm-hmm. But they need a job. Mm-hmm. You need them. And this is what we're seeing. And it's burnout. They're having burnout when they they have to, to work that hard in the Bay Area to just live in the Bay Area. Yeah. Just to, or, just or to, to live. Me. Yeah. To afford, to afford a rent or, you know, to afford a house. And they have lived, to live so far away. So it's just a vicious. Cycle. And the BART system doesn't go late at night. No. So then you've got to figure out how to get home. Absolutely. But even in, I mean, Chicago has, doesn't have that as much of a cost of living mm. issue as San Francisco, but there, I mean, you've got chefs, Paul Kahn, Stephanie Izard, mm. who are like, if we just will hire people, whether we have an immediate need or not, because mm. we know sooner Sooner or later, but likely sooner, we will have a need for someone. Keep them in the pantry. It's amazing to think that in the city of Chicago, we had, at one point, we had two different 
major culinary schools going. We had three big culinary schools plus the French Pastry Institute. Mm. And every chef I knew was like, I can't find pastry cooks. Mm. I don't have any pastry cooks. Mm. Well, so, it's funny that you say that about the schools because before I opened up 1300, I was cooking at CCA for a minute because I knew one of the guys there. We worked together back in London. And I told him I was about to open a restaurant. And he said, come and come teach over here. So I went over there. I taught, and I was seeing students who were there that should not be there. They were getting it into the cooking profession, mainly because they saw what, what they saw on TV mm-hmm. and didn't understand what... All the, all the time it took to get there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, they would be told by the recruiters who were recruiting these kids and were all getting money by the amount of people that they recruit mm. to get people in there that, oh, once you when you go through this program, you're going to come out, you're going to be a sous chef. So these kids were told wrong information. And when they came out and realized that when they got out of school, that they were just starting, it was a, a rude awakening for them. Mm. And so it was something I remember when I got out of culinary school, my mom said to me, well, now you can get a top job and, and get a car and take me shopping on the Saturday. Hmm. I looked at my mom and said, no, I'm just starting now. I knew that. <laughs> you know, You're but like, I, and hey, I'll be working on Saturday. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's something I'm seeing quite a bit with chefs in Chicago and, uh, and hearing about otherwise. And it's a lot of Chicago chefs are working with their programs to get people who are just out of prison into food service jobs. Sure. And so, Matt, you mentioned that I uh, write cookbooks, and I co-authored a book, Korean Barbecue, with Bill Kim, Mm -hmm. who's a chef in Chicago with several restaurants, Urban Belly. And he has, you know, the book is created around this idea of we're going to create something like mother sauces, but they're Korean flavors and, and ingredients, and show you how to just sort of plus one them and turn them in, transform them into other sauces or give them multiple uses. And that came from the fact that that's what he was doing in his restaurants because Mm -hmm. he was working with people who were, you know, maybe based in a halfway house looking for work, looking for, uh, but didn't have any skills. And he was like, okay, I don't need you to know how to brunoise or something like that. Mm. Like we're past that right now in a lot of American restaurants. Mm -hmm. What I need is for you to have a desire to have a full-time job and to say, okay, I will show up on time. I will do my work and I will learn what you need. And so he's created, he's simplifying the systems because that opens up a whole other avenue. Yeah, it's genius. It's actually, it's a very good idea. Yeah, and there's another chef, Bruno Abate, in Chicago, who is working closely with people in the kind of prison reform programs to help continue to find employees Mm. for for chefs and restaurateurs in the area. And Matthias Merges is doing this. There's a few, uh, you know, kind of big-name chefs who are saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm in California doing an event later this week up at the CIA with Keith Corbin Mm -hmm. with Alta Adams in Los Angeles. And he learned to cook while he was in prison Mm. and just came out and got an opportunity with Daniel Patterson and Roy Mm. Choi when they were Mm. opening their restaurants and worked his way up and, you know, now is doing this beautiful food. But I think that that is... That's sort of like the one solution I've heard about because otherwise it is just brutal. Well, and I think you said it too, where you don't necessarily 
have to always have the training in a school format, but you have to want to be there, you know? And I have this conversation with, you know, folks all the time here that when, if there's somebody here who starts to kind of go off the tracks a little bit and my immediate go-to conversation is I can help you with a lot of stuff, but I can't make you want to be here. So, mm-hmm. so if you don't want to be here, that's another conversation, but everything else, you know, you can, you know, you can get help with. So I concur with the program that you're talking about. We've done that here in San Francisco. I've been involved in that mm-hmm. like 20 years ago. We had people come in from those institutes and working in kitchens, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I've been a part of that. And it's, those are wonderful things, but it's not enough. It's just not enough. And I, what I think is that major issue over here is that you don't have enough vocational schools. Mm-hmm. I think that you have to go back to an early age and get people interested in this profession. Mm-hmm. I, I remember my first cooking experience was as a 13-year-old at my school hmm. in home economics. Oh, wow. That's great. And I, I, I still remember cooking that fish pie. And taking a salmon and making a white sauce and wrapping it in bought puff pastry mm-hmm. and making an envelope with this mm-hmm. and put it in the oven and baking it. Oh, wow. Everybody was like, wow, that's amazing. That's and I took it, took it home and showed it to my dad and he had some, like, that's fantastic. So, and then I was able to leave school and go to a vocational school uh-huh. that I was, was much more in line with who I am. Mm-hmm. And what I was instead of going to a university or a, a college, as you call them over here, and spending <laughs> X amount of dollars and learning to cook in there and get myself into a great restaurant. Oh. And that's how I got into the profession. And I think if the government, this country, was to invest in those kind of schools, you'll have a lot more people being able to do trades such as cooking, plumbing, electrical. Yeah. These are all things that we need they're not going away right so and there's a dire need for this so we need to invest in that in vocational schools yeah and i think we also need to look at what is the reality of life as a line cook Mm -hmm. and is this something that is feasible to do long term and you know for a lot of women it certainly doesn't feel that way Mm. if they want to start a family Mm -hmm. they don't have necessarily opportunities to keep working while they're still expecting because of physical limitations and restaurants who aren't able to or aren't willing to find other other jobs for them there's Mm -hmm. that sort of goes to a much bigger issue of how do you make being a restaurant cook a sustainable career. Right, right. The physicality definitely does catch up with you. One thing that you had mentioned before that really caught my attention was when we were talking about hiring employees, about restaurants not being able to function at full capacity. And I think that that's a really interesting point because sometimes, and you know, we've all been there where you're staffed good enough for the night and things are going well, but you know that you're on the brink that if you get, you know, X amount of more walk-ins through the door, mm. everything's just going to go to hell. I think we all have those issues. I, mm-hmm. I think that we have to look towards technology to help us with this. I think that's the way the Oh, okay. Be. Robots? 
Yeah. You, have you heard of a Wally burger? Yeah. So, but it's funny because <laughs> so, but it takes like three, he has like full, three full-time engineers, you know, to control the, the burger robot. So it's simple. I mean, and yes, it's uh you know, infant it's, stage. Right. Exactly. And, and that makes right. sense now, but, but it's kind of funny to me that, you know, there's like full-time engineers being paid, you know, way more, right. Than a burger cook, right. To operate a robot who cooks burgers. I, I just, I find the irony fantastic, but yes. Right. I think what, that that's just part of like yeah. I don't know what's happening in America where like we all love burgers but we're we're just sort of abusing burgers these days with you know creating all of these like fake meat burgers and robot made burgers and burger abuse burger abuse it's like a self-loathing of the American character or something I don't know do you see a point where robots in whatever form could help? Uh, maybe a robot server, a robot line cook. Does that does that do anything for you? It does nothing for me. And you <laughs> asked about this, and I was just like, no, completely cold. Because I do think there is a point where, if you're, there are certain jobs that can be done. You know, say someone calls out sick, I can still do a certain amount of work if I'm not hugely sick. I can, <laughs> I can, you know, do that from home. I don't know. If we I cannot. <laughs> I can oh, for, for, you know, like writing, work, writing, oh, yeah. writing right, and yeah, things like right, that. Right, I can right. like prop myself sure. up, right? Mug of tea, check a few yeah. emails, computer, yeah. right. do whatever it is sure, I sure. do, right? And we've all done it. We've all like you know gone to work as cooks or servers mm -hmm. with the flu, and mm -hmm. you have that like magic ability to sort of hide it when you're right. in front of people, but you can't. Like there is a point where. Your servers can only take so many tables. So your right. grill right. only has so much room and that's it. Right. So, I mean, there's, it's the flip side of the restaurant industry being so wonderful because it is tangible and tactile, but all of that's going to work against you if you're understaffed and you just physically cannot get more food out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on robots? I was in Mod Pizza the other day with some friends of mine up in Napa, and they had ordered pizza. I'm not, I wasn't big on it, but I'm complaining. They were buying it, and I went in there with them to pick it up because I always look at new places and mm -hmm. I'm standing around looking at how people are ordering. And they had all these compartments with all different ingredients there, and then they're like, "Okay, choose what you want and put on the pizza." And what really caught my eye in there was not the pizza itself; it was now you know but was this machine that this one guy had and he was getting balls of pizza dough flapping them out a little bit putting them on there closing it down and it were perfect spears of pizzas hmm. coming out i'm like wow <laughs> that's technology that mm -hmm. is helping mm -hmm. and it was doing it in such a fast period of time mm -hmm. that it was able to cope with the whole restaurant hmm. as opposed to having yeah like two or three guys two or three probably, guys, yeah. two or three doing guys that. especially yeah. guys who are still getting a feel for the dough right. and exactly. they like pull a hole in it or right. it's too <laughs> thick or it's right. you know the dough is shrinking and they don't yeah. get what to do and so that caught my attention for a good 15 minutes and my buddy was like hey david you okay i'm like yeah i'm all right i'm just looking at that machine just i'm just and watching the I, pizza robot yes right and it was the first time I've ever seen it. And that's where it's going. That's yeah. what's going to take over. We don't have to stop the personnel. We have to use machinery. Yeah. Well, I, w I will say, I think it's fascinating that uh, there's apparently a movement in some, in some restaurants to work with this technology that allows people to not interact with servers. 
because there is a generation that has grown up being able to order everything online mm. on their phone mm -hmm. or on their computer, they now are saying, okay, not only do they want to just order restaurant food and have it delivered, but I was getting a, a pitch to write about and I did not want to do this, but this technology that allows people to order from your restaurant and then they can walk in and someone says, oh, okay, table 38 is here. They pre-ordered. And so all their food is there. Mm. And I love that in an airport. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I'm based in Chicago. So the right. move at O'Hare is you get the Tortas Frontera app on your phone. Mm -hmm. And while you're, when you get to the airport, you order your food. And then by the time you get through security, right. you just go up to the window. You have limited time. Up. You have limited time. Right. Yeah. Right. Plane takes off. Planes take yeah. off. And I mean... You can't stop right, that. Right, 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 But, you know, and I love Farmer's Fridge, mm. which is a Chicago-based operation, and they do these really, really good salads mm. that are refreshed daily, but it's a, you know, a peach caprese with Israeli couscous mm. and fresh mozzarella and arugula and basil, and you're like, okay, I legit just got this out of the vending machine mm. next to the office, but... It's like it's a modern, like a modern, else. modern day automat. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So maybe that's the way, but I still, when you were describing the, the pizza dough, I was like, well, they need to create a robot that makes a not quite perfect circle. Cause if mm, I get a perfect circle, right. I think I, you just slipped me a tombstone right. pizza, right? Yeah. Right. I hope tombstone right. is not a sponsor, <laughs> but if I get, if it's a little bit irregular and you can guarantee there's going to be one large bubble yeah. on one side and a right. little bit of charring on the other or whatever, then I'll feel like, okay, oh, I got my handmade pizza. Well, uh, to be honest, it wasn't, I edit, I tried it and it was not it was not, not yeah. it was missing the love, great. right? It's it was missing the love. love. Yeah. But I can see where it's going. Yeah. And I can see improvements on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was, it just as astonished me to see a, a machine that did that. And yeah. it makes sense to have something like that. And I think that's the future of food and where it's going to go. Right. And you're going to have robotics helping you in certain ways. Because we have at this moment, well, do we have a, a KitchenAid, you know, that chops and minces and right. stuff like that, that we, take for granted instead of back in the day when I started and I'm, I'm a dinosaur I had to chop everything by hand you know brunoise and right you know and 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 pieces of lune and yeah you know pieces of, of vegetables that you had to chop up by hand you did it this now would be the portion don't... of the podcast where we all just start dropping our French knife cuts. <laughs> right, and... right. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean uh, and now people don't have those hand skills anymore I think no. it's put into a robocoop and mince everything yeah up. right so the, so and which is terrible it which is, is terrible like with an there. onion or something yeah. but yeah. it's there now it's already there and we're doing it because we don't have the staff to do those things right and, and it's and it really comes down to just not enough humans you know i'm curious mm. for the two of you as yeah. chefs would you rather buy i mean obviously you can buy pizza dough that has been portioned out and rolled out flat and frozen would you rather buy that or would you rather buy the dough rolling robot? That's a great question. Yeah. It depends where I'm doing business. If I mean, I'm, obviously, if like Tartine is like, hey, we're going to, you know, we've got dough for you. You're mm -hmm. like, oh, this is going to be really good dough. If I have a restaurant in a mall and there's a lot of people coming up. And, and, and not a lot of space, not maybe. Space. And, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously going to use that machine. Yeah. Right. Now, if I'm going to have a nice little quaint little restaurant and I'm going to seat maybe... 40, 45 people, and I'm going to have the staff there to make my pizza dough, and right. it's going to be, you know, artisan pizza. 
yeah, of course, I want to do the pizza the right way. Yeah, I I think it's application for sure. I mean, I'm always thinking about how hard would it be for us to do it here? Is it going to be something that's, you know, within our world of labor and ingredients and space and time? Mm. But at at the same time, is it an item that comes from like, maybe it's, it's cheaper to get it pre-made, but maybe that pre-made item is coming from the other side of the country. That makes me feel weird. Right. That Mm -hmm. makes me feel like, you know, some, a machine, not only is a machine doing it, but a machine is doing it and it has to travel a really long way to get here. So like, there's like a guilt factor, like a guilt, a guilt scale. Right. And so I guess it's like, how guilty am I going to feel by using that? But you'd be amazed now to, with me being at the airport and seeing restaurants from there. Hmm. With limited space and sure. limited equipment, sure. how much good quality stuff is being sourced? Oh yeah, and being brought to the airport, and is very, very favorable with being from scratch. Yeah, it, it will blow your mind away. Yeah, and uh, now you're having these kitchens, commissary kitchens, where they're making stuff and putting it together, and they're bringing them to this point where they're selling it. And it's not being made on premise, but they're really good. And so when you walk in at the airport and you have a nice salad, you know, you said you caprese or, you know, with couscous and stuff like that. I doubt very much if that's being made on premise. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, that's actually it's it comes from a vending machine. Yes. And it's of good quality. And it's it's a very good quality in that. So, I mean, I think that's very encouraging as someone who spends a lot of time scrounging around (laughs) trying to find food to eat because the thing that i think is hardest to find in an airport that uh, isn't terrible is a sandwich Hmm. i think so often they're soggy Mm -hmm. and they they have like the sad piece of lettuce that Mm -hmm. hasn't been crisp in like four days Mm -hmm. and the bread is terrible So I want to, you give me the high sign when it's safe for me to get a sandwich at the airport. Well, a sandwich like that, it's the choice of bread that you use. It's the choice of lettuce that you use. Right. There's certain things that will hold up a lot better. Right. Right, 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 right. That vendor has to make some real smart choices. Yeah. When you're getting a sandwich that's been there and it's soggy like that, they haven't been really smart with their choices. And so that's why you get bad quality. Now I can make a sandwich and, and it will sit there for half a day and it would look like it was made 10 minutes ago, but I have to make the right choices of what. Yeah. And what to use. I'll never forget. I was at Oakland waiting to board a flight and I was looking out onto, I guess the tarmac and I saw one of my delivery guys and I was watching him and the process that he had to go through to get through security with his load of ingredients. Mm. And I think I was like waiting for 20 minutes at the gate and he, it, it took him like at least that long to get through, you know, his inspection. And I was thinking, wow, you know, operating at the airport, it's just, you know, you have your knives tethered to your, you know, workstations, right? You have your deliveries that take forever to get there. So probably not all vendors want to come there because they, they may not want the hassle of, you know, uh, uh, going into a situation like that, but it is, it's, uh, I guess, streamlining the processes and maybe doing as much outside as you can would probably make sense. Yeah. I I don't want this to become an airport discussion, but having been there, (laughs) there's a lot of stuff that is pre-screened with the delivery guys. They've all been, you know, checked. And that delivery guy is the only delivery guy for that firm that comes all the time. Mm -hmm. And they have a special badge and they've had to go through certification to get that badge 
to get at the airport. And so no one else can use that badge. So that's not an issue. And then, when, most, that, and then when that delivery driver, you know, leaves the company, then, right, well, then, then they it's find like someone else. Right. It's like, a, so it's like a whole thing. Because it's the airport and they have to go through that, they will charge excess amount for that delivery. So a lot of the vendors like airports because they're consistent. They're high volume. Yeah. And they make a lot of money. And they can charge, they charge a hassle fee. Exactly. Um, So, so back to technology for a second. So there's another uh, restaurateur in the neighborhood who also works in tech, you know, welcome to San Francisco. And he was talking about his company is working on augmented reality point of sale. So, and he was explaining it as a bartender at a busy nightclub Mm. has like a special set of glasses that's listening to the customer. The customer says, I'd like a gray goose and tonic. And the augmented point of sale starts immediately tabulating the bill based on what the customer is already ordering. So while the bartender is, 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 you know, making the drink, the tab's already ready. He doesn't need to turn around and punch anything in or do anything wow. right. And then, and then the customer ideally pays with some kind of a, you know, of a, of, a, of an Apple pay or something like that. Right. And, and I, and so I think that that's kind of cool, right? I mean, you know, for us here, it may not be a reality because we're a small restaurant, but at like a stadium or at a busy nightclub or a busy bar, you know, those 39 seconds that you can erase from the transaction, would help with not ha- maybe you don't have to have that extra bartender because the ones you have can be a little bit more efficient with their time. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you've embraced our robot overlords. So I know. I, not for uh, not for everything. I think for I think for something. I'm you know I'm a fan of technology for for some things. Like I, like I literally I don't understand why our reservation system. And our point of sale system and our credit card processor and, you know, all the other kind of countless things that we use, why they don't talk with each other better. Some, it's starting to come out now a little bit more and more that some things do, Mm -hmm. but, but. You know, I use Open Table. Open Table, we have all our notes. We keep really good notes about about what the customers like, et cetera. And so it makes sense to me that the server should be able to go to table three. That reservation and notes has been transferred from the reservation system into the point of sale. So when the server walks up to table three, not only could they greet them by name, they know already that there's a walnut allergy, that they've been back four times, that it's their anniversary today like all on their point of sale screen, you know? And, and for me, I think it provides that extra customer service that now more and more and more, I think people really do. Most people, you do, you do, like you were saying, you do have the folks who they don't want to see anybody. They want to order from a kiosk or a tablet. And even in full service restaurants, I'm seeing these things, you know, more and more where, where they want to order without a server and just have the food brought to the table. But they don't um, want anyone interrupting them while they're on their phone. Right. They don't. Yeah. But, but most, most people, I think they really do like that extra level of service. It makes them feel special after their, you know, long and hard day. Right. Do you think that's a generational thing? No, I no, I see it across generations. I think I think everybody likes attention across generations. I do. I think that's such a great point because I believe a certain amount of it is the three of us having worked in traditional restaurants and that because I mean you saying like, oh, this whole thing of this is what they like when they come in and that and it reminded me of when I was a host at a restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, Carlucci in Chicago years ago. And we had to be very careful 
to not say, oh, good to see you again. <laughs> because um, we exactly. were a regular spot for one guy yeah. with his wife and his girlfriend. <laughs> so it was, so it was yeah, but you had to, but we were, you know. Or for the was, first time. Yeah. Right, right. right. And well, we so, had restaurants in London that at lunchtime they would close the curtains. Because the businessmen would come in with their secretary, oh, wow. secretaries slash girlfriends, yeah, and so you weren't supposed to know who he was there. Oh, with. Wow. And at nighttime, they would open them up because they oh, would wow. come in with their wives. Oh wow! I think lunch on Valentine's Day is the most interesting <laughs> service it of is, the that's year funny. because it is. I love that. So that's the thing. Like I remember, like oh, we knew all these things because. Right. People would say that restaurant has the best door in the city mm, because mm. a guy could come in and say, "Oh crap, I forgot it's my anniversary," and we'd just be like, "Flowers, good, all right." And we would send the valets out. We had a deal with the flower shop, yeah. and we mm. would, you know, I mean, we would just pull together this stuff. We made these things happen, but mm. I do think that there's a certain amount of the allergies, mm -hmm. which is obviously something that's only growing. And so yeah. to know that, okay. David has this allergy and Matt has this. And you know, I think that is absolutely something that should mm -hmm. be part of Open Table, of mm -hmm. Resi, mm -hmm. of Talk, of all of these systems. And it's surprising because they all ask for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They all ask for that information. So it should be. And I don't know. I mean, like, I think it would be nice to have somebody say, hey, I know you normally like to start with a glass of something sparkling. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm going to, because I'm a human, I'm going to say we've got this. We just brought in this new sparkling that's Portuguese and it's really kind of, you know, funky and interesting. You might like, here, let me just pour you a little to try. Yeah. And that would make like a little boost. Like, oh, yeah, okay. Makes you feel special. special. These people know me. Yeah, versus yes. versus the server robot who is, you know, according to the algorithm, you drink <laughs> kava. <laughs> Thank you. I think when you listen to um, you, you listen. You're to, a very good robot. <laughs> you listen to um, automated things. Now they're not that. They're not that bad. You uh, know, I listen to no. things on on TV or on, yeah. on a radio. They, the voice is normally someone who's very nice. And in fact, I've seen now where um, they have collections. They, they're actually going to Jamaica and having you having people, Jamaican voices. Call That's awesome. Yeah, because who can get mad at a Jamaican yeah, voice? Yeah, right. It's, it's multi multicultural. Could. Exactly. Do you do self-checkout at the grocery store? All the time. So, so some of the produce codes have words and some yeah. of them don't. Yeah. And my favorite is bananas. When you put in the code for bananas, it yeah. says, you know, take your bananas and put <laughs> oh, <really>? your <laughs> bananas in the, yeah, listen to it. Now. Buy bananas just for that experience. Uh, I and I mean, okay. most of them are like, uh, you know, I, I just say item, yeah. but, but it's got like, it knows about like 10 items yeah. and one of them is bananas and it's fantastic. I just, I, 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 I get, I, I get bananas from my shake in the morning. Yeah. So I'll, I'll definitely look out for that. Yeah. So I know one one topic that is always, you know, coming up lately is mental health. So let's diverge into the mental health alley for a little for a moment. Yeah. Dive in mental health. <laughs> I think there is there's almost nothing else chefs want to finally talk about more these days mm. than mental health and the fact that so many of us, so many people have this image on social media and it's like, mm. oh, I'm doing this and oh, I'm doing that. And I was listening to a podcast the other day, a competitive podcast. It's a podcast about Dolly Parton. 
Oh, that's awesome. And she's interviewed in it. I've only, I only listened to the first episode, but she talked about being suicidal. Mm. And she said, you know, it was the 80s and I just had this big movie out, but mm. I had all this stuff going on in my family. And I'm like, you mean after nine to five? Like one of the greatest movies of all time. Mm. Like that, that, so it was so, it was so good to hear that. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we had um, Gerard Craft writes essays for us from time to time. And he wrote a piece a couple of months ago about how being on the best restaurant list and beard shortlist for so long, Mm. almost completely decimated his Mm. mental health because he was, I mean, he recounts this moment. He's sitting in the, in the park, in his car, in the parking lot, at the grocery store and the, Beard finalist list is coming out and for his region and he's been on the short list every year mm. and suddenly that year he wasn't on it mm. oh, and wow. how it felt and how he wished he had dealt with it better because he's married he and his wife have two beautiful daughters he has you know a group of restaurants now and he is so generous in giving of sharing that experience. And I think that that's what really helps because if you, if you just know people through their social media and what you think their lives are, it's like, okay, well, it's all great. And, you know, we all ate beautiful, Mm. you know, exquisitely laminated pastries for breakfast and had these like amazing meals, amazing time at work and all of that. And to find more and more people openly talking about, drug and alcohol issues. A chef I'm friends with, uh, Jason Alley in Richmond, Virginia, has been very open on social media mm. about about sobriety and how important it is for him. There's a group called Ben's Friends that has chapters around the country, but it's based in the Southeast. Mm. And it's like AA meetings, but for people in the restaurant industry. Mm. So it's at a time... You know, the, one of the things that is very important for a lot of people when they're trying to find the right AA meeting is to find a like-minded group. Sure. Yeah, where you feel people. comfortable. Sure. And so find an atmosphere where you're surrounded by people who are saying, yeah, we're in this industry too. And we have to pour drinks and we, you know, come home smelling like alcohol because we were mm-hmm. serving, mm. but we also still struggle with this and this is how we do mm. it. For me personally, I, you know. I remember at a very early age, my stepmother was an alcoholic. And so that showed me the issues with drink, alcohol, and beer, and, and that kind of stuff. And the bad stuff when she was not there for, for myself and my brother. I remember you know, her and my dad eventually split up. But I remember meeting her years later, and I took her on a trip to um, down out in Florida to the Keys. And we're talking about the good times that we had together, her raising me, and about her alcoholism. And she said, you know, I still have that problem. It'll never go away. Mm. But she always said, I remember you used to come home, and you would look at me and say, oh, you're drunk again? And kind of laughed and walked away. Mm. And she, as a kid, I was doing this. Mm. And you you don't remember that? No. Mm. But to have that awareness as a child. I had the awareness as a child that this was, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is why are you doing this to yourself? And I thought it was funny that she was doing this. And she said it was so embarrassing. Mm. But it had a grip on her Mm -hmm. that would not let go. She couldn't let go of it. Mm. And so this is something that's with you for your life. And so I think people have to have empathy, understanding about this to start off with. 
Also, I think this country has made a conscious effort. If you look back at the history with mental health care is to defund it and mm-hmm. get out of it. And this was made during the Reagan time. It hasn't been, you know, changed since then. So, you know, as a society, America has to come together and say, we need to help and make sure that these people are not in this position. I look at what's going on with opioids now. And all of a sudden, it's a big, huge thing. Whereas you look at what happened with crack cocaine, what was the answer for that? You know, what did Nancy do? Say, right, just know? say no. Just say no. In ju- in exactly. Jail, like create these prison uh, yeah. sentences for marijuana yeah. that, uh, you know, were just obscene. It's rid- obscene and ridiculous. And racist. And- uh, very much so. But so that's the history of it. Moving forward, I, I feel that people looking at the opioids realize that there is an issue, there is a problem in this country, and that they're taking steps to make it better. It has to come from that point of view. Individuals can't, can do what they can do, but I think as a society, we have to look at mental health and as a society, work together to, to eradicate it as much as we possibly can or help with it. And to have those conversations. I mean, we, um, we do an issue of the magazine each year devoted to kind of rising star chefs, new, mm. our chefs to watch issue. And a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, we added the question to everyone, how do you take care of your own mental health? Mm. And what do you do to provide it for your team? Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful to see some of these rising star chefs mm. who, you know, newly in charge of kitchens, you know, within the late, you know, year or so having these programs. And it's hard to see some of them say, oh my God, I haven't taken a day off in six weeks. And I'm like, okay, well, you should take care of that. You need to get away and you need to set that example for your team. And you need to have, without sounding cavalier about the financial side of it, you need to have a business plan that allows for you to get away and for your team Mm. to get away. Mm knowing that you know there is that balance of the salaried positions versus the the hourlies so it's great because i think that the conversation is a lot more at the forefront and open on the mm. west coast particularly hmm. here in san francisco no, absolutely and you know but there's still that mentality of like hey we're badass cooks and we'll right We'll work through it. And Mu- we'll, like muscle through it. You well, know? it's a macho thing yeah. to do. Right. The macho thing that's yeah. killing people. Well, it's mm-hmm. killing people, but people are realizing that. Mm-hmm. As part of the problem or part of the issue that people aren't getting into the restaurant business because they feel like they don't have that time to take off, you know, to take care of themselves. And I think the restaurant business has to realize this is part of the issue of attracting good stuff and making sure that they have time for people to get the time that they need off. Well, and it's a little bit lonely. I mean, you know, how many birthdays and milestones and et cetera and et cetera yeah. have you missed, you know, when, when you were working in the kitchen and, you know, I, I tell people no all the time and it gets, it gets a little bit harder and harder as I get older mm. to keep saying no, because at some point people stop asking you to things because you're always saying no. And then you, you know, you, you, your, your days off are, different than everybody else's Mm. you know it's like you're 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 on this schedule that nobody else keeps Mm. um although many other people keep it but nobody has so much time to band together you know i mean you do have your you know your industry friends who you hang out with when you have like 
minded days off and things like that. But, you know, the weekend is the weekend. That's pretty much when all the stuff happens, more or less, right? Uh, it's hard to get your friend to yeah. throw their birthday dinner like <laughs> right. Monday at 10 right. a.m. Right. Yeah, I did. I did my birthday dinner for my last birthday on a on a Sunday night because that was kind of like the best that I could manage. And I knew that the folks that I had there, that they had to go to work, you know, Monday morning. So it's a little bit lonely. It's a little bit stressful, right, with that fact mm. about, about not, you know, being able to see the people that you want to see, you know, not being able to take the vacations, you know, with the people that you love and things like that. And then I, I always think of front of the house folks in a special way because they have to be on when they're in the front, when they're with tables, no matter how tired they are, no matter if they have the sniffles or whatever, or, or mm-hmm. if so-and-so just died, they have to be completely present at a table and give them their full attention, you know, or else, you know, people think that they are monsters, right? Mm-hmm. And then after doing a full shift of that, you know, I watch them. I, you know, I see the servers towards the end of the shift. You know, they come back in the kitchen and their faces kind of relax and they're kind of doing like a panting breath. You know, it's like, okay, go go back out, right? And then they, you know what I'm saying? Cause it's like like on a busy night, you know, when you're on for hours at a time, you know, at least in the kitchen, you know, we can, you know, we're not seen as much. So we don't have to, you know, face customers a hundred percent of the time. But but right. it's exhausting. You know, mentally. I I agree with you. I just, as a a chef, as an owner of restaurants, for me, I didn't celebrate birthdays for many, many years. I I think the the only one I celebrate was when I turned 50, but then I left the country. We went to Jamaica Mm. and enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. But I tried to give everybody else their time off. Mm -hmm. I tried to give everybody else their birthdays off. I would like you go and do that. You celebrate that. And so, because it was my business, but you know, it had an effect on me. It had an effect on relationships I had, Mm. but that was what I signed up for. So I thought it was part and parcel of what I was doing. And how much of an effect has that had on me and my personality? I would probably say a tremendous amount, (laughs) Um, but I live with that. I live with that every day Mm. and the choices I made, I don't regret them. Mm. But I do think that there's, you know, that mentality of, screw you, I'm a cook, I work regardless, means like you're still starting with the idea of like, okay, screw everybody else, Mm. which isn't really a good way to live. No, I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. Oh, yeah. It's it's the choice I made, mm -hmm. me personally. And I don't expect everybody to live their life like that. But that's, you, you get to a point where you go, okay, this is what it takes for me to be successful. I will do this. Right. And it's good and it's bad. And I think that I can't even imagine how difficult it is for chefs with children mm. and spouses of chefs with children because well, there's many of us have been through divorces. Right. Every right. single one of us, sure. Very few of us haven't. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's this thing. I know so many chefs are, I say, like, oh, okay, like, why don't we do the interview on a Monday? Because I know that's a quieter day. Yeah. And, Easily half the time they say that is actually the only day of the week I see my children. Mm. Yeah. And it's so sad. So I'm like, hey, let's do this another day then. Go see your kids. Mm-hmm. Like this mm. is not, but it's it's sad that it still feels like an all or nothing proposition mm. there. Well, until we figure out, you know, more labor, you know, and, and and how to get more help. I think it's 
you know, it just gets more and more stressful to find yeah. those days off. So mm-hmm. it's not getting know. any better. It's no, actually getting worse. Yeah. So, but, but I do, you know, I, I like to do yoga a couple times a week. I think that that helps a lot. And I always, you know, and again, this is California, uh, <laughs> but, but, but I do encourage my staff to do that. Cause I think that, you know, not only is it good for counteracting the physicality of the job, but, but just to go in a room where you're not in front of your phone, you know, for an hour, hour and a half is already amazing. Michael Gulata, who's has two restaurants in New Orleans and is opening a third at the airport Mm -hmm. has done a really great job of being open and honest about talking with his staff about things he's struggling with, but, but also the need to not just say, Hey guys, let me know if you need to talk, but to sort of keep an eye on a, someone who seems off and say, Hey, you kind of seem like you're going through something right now. Let's talk about it Mm -hmm. instead of waiting for the person battling anxiety or depression to move through that wall and that fog to reach out for help. And I think that he's, he's done a wonderful job. I love Kat Kinsman from food and wine does a podcast and created a site called chefs with issues. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. And I think that that's been good, but I really do think that we're just at the very, we've sort of like collectively as an industry taken one little baby step. Mm-hmm. forward in that and need to solve the the greater idea of okay well i need to just be utterly badass at all times yeah and and also there's the customer service aspect i mean you know do you want to you know put out into the world all the troubles you're having and then greet customers at the door with a smile on your face knowing that they know the troubles that you're having right you know it's there's that like veil of customer service that that the curtain that you don't see behind you know that that is kind of uh, ingrained within w- within it you know well i always i was in my restaurant i i was always given the problems of the staff and mm. trying to help them figure things out but mm-hmm. i could never give them my problems well, i could never yeah. share that with them they they didn't want to know right and right that, and well and you so, don't want to burden them you know with it either right so no well it's somewhat embarrassing as well because mm-hmm. you're you're supposed to be the leader you're supposed to mm-hmm. have everything figured out mm-hmm. and you're supposed to help them right but you had your own problems and you mm-hmm. had to deal with it you know and i i do what you do i exercise i mm-hmm. run i play soccer and i did yoga when i mm-hmm. ran so i got through my issues, through exercise hmm. and trying to figure things out and realizing things are never that bad and they're never that good. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and it would sort itself out. So I asked you both about issues that food professionals need to take head on and you both separately said food waste. So oh, God, yes. I think that's a, that's another thing that, that has been really, really being talked about more and more, which is great. So let's talk for a minute about food waste. For me, it's been one of the biggest conundrums of restaurants and food waste and people being left out there having no food, people on the street. How do you get this food to them? How do you order in a, in a way that you're not creating all this waste? It, it's something that you feel guilty about all the time when you have a restaurant, you have all this food that's available and there's mm-hmm. certain entities that you can give food to but it's a lot of them you you know you have to be careful you you know that you don't get sued or poisoning people and mm-hmm. stuff like that mm-hmm. and so how do we collectively work as a city to make sure that when we have decent food that we can't serve but it's still edible how do we get it to that that something needs to be sort, sorted out 
you don't think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree because I think that there's so much conversation about the millions of pounds of food that goes to waste. Mm. You know, when we talk about the sort of like ugly fruit and vegetables and things like that, it's like, okay, but nine times out of 10, you don't see what the carrot looked like mm. when it came into the the restaurant. So yeah, absolutely. That's what chefs need to be able to order. But then on the other hand, like the growers and distributors need to be able to sell it. I was mm. in Miami once and talking with somebody who owned a massive, massive fruit farm. And he wound up making wine out of like avocados and mangoes and things mm, because yeah. he said, you know, I had all this fruit that I couldn't sell and it was just rotting. And I was sitting there like, well, you can't give it to like a shelter or anything. Mm -hmm. You can't. It was like, oh no, it's just like misshapen. And, and you also don't want to create that, that perception of like, oh, here, you know, the shelters can get all of the ugly looking produce. Like you don't deserve like, you know, that platonic ideal of the apple that mm. we all think. I think that if we can figure out a way to do it, I mean, I've heard about different programs that allow restaurants opt in to let people order half portions of their food mm. at a discounted price, which is something I would certainly buy into. I've been to a lot of events lately and that absolutely drives me up a wall because, and you guys do do this all the time you do the event and it's tasting stations mm -hmm. yeah and at each station you've got your little plate and now it's maybe a bamboo or palm leaf plate so at least it's recyclable or it can be used as compost and then you get the portion of food and people take one bite and throw the rest away mm. and you're like wow we're at this event to Right. Meals on wheels or whatever it is. Right. Or share right, our strength right. or something. And you're like, we're trying to solve hunger issues right. by feeding people food that they're going to throw away. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. that drives me up a wall. Yeah. Also, yeah. I think in this country, you've yeah. got to do something about portion sizes. Mm. I, I, I'll never forget, I came over here. And I went to get a sandwich, mm -hmm. and the sandwich was yay big. Right. And I remember, and I'm a big guy, and I looked at that sandwich, and I went, oh, my God, look at the size of this sandwich. Mm -hmm. I ate half the sandwich, and then I ate the other half the next day. Mm -hmm. Within six months, I could eat the full sandwich. <laughs> so, and then I had a friend come over from England to mm -hmm. stay with me about a year later. So now I'm completely indoctrinated mm -hmm. in the American way. You're supersizing everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. So I, I get a salmon for for us. I'm cooking grilling salmon for everybody, and I'm doing six ounce portions. Mm -hmm. And he's as big as I. We worked. We were apprentices together, and we were really close. And he looked at the size of the salmon and said, "My God, David, why are you cutting them so big?" I'm like, "What? <laughs> it's big?" He goes, "Yeah." So in Europe, we don't cut things. We don't have things as mm -hmm. big. Mm -hmm. I think part of the issue over here is portion sizes. Mm -hmm. and it's not doing us any good whatsoever. Right, right. And I think now people are starting to change their ways. I've seen cans of Cokes now are being reduced to smaller containers. And I think that's great. And I think that's what we need to do in restaurants and educate our um, customers that the size, portion sizes need to be smaller. You don't need to eat that much food. And I think that's part of the... Part of one of the ways of looking and at reducing it, waste. And yeah. reducing waste. Yeah. We Absolutely. We have two bigger portions in this country. 
Massive, massive portions. Yes. And I will say that when the James Beard Awards moved, the Chef Awards moved to Chicago a few years ago, mm. Michael Bauer, who was then the restaurant critic at the Chronicle here, mm. was at an event for some of the like journalists who were judges. And we were talking and I said, oh, what do you think about Chicago? And he said, oh, my God, the portion size is here. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because it's, it's a Midwestern mm-hmm, city and mm-hmm. everybody needs to see the value on the plate. Right, right. Right. But it's also realistically, we're creating value by putting empty carbohydrates, Absolutely. like filling up right. with extra pasta, extra rice, extra bread, whatever. Like you're not, you're not going to be like, well, let's, well, some, there are some people who are doing the giant portions of foie gras or something like that. They but, are? <laughs> oh yeah. You can't yeah. sell in California. You can't, and not in New York. In New York no. either, or, right. Well, New York, it'll be a year or so from oh, now. Okay. They've just made it illegal. Yeah. But I absolutely agree that the portion size, I think the education on, I think chefs are actually leading the movement towards total utilization of product. Mm -hmm. The fact that I have some friends who are not in the industry at all, and I love talking to them about things. They're like this focus group that they don't even know (laughs) that they're in. And when one of them says, oh, yeah, I made this pesto with carrot tops. And I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. One more center brought into the fold. <laughs> Here, we're, we, we're really cognizant of what gets put in compost and recycling, and then finally, you know, garbage if it has to. But I feel like we just all could be so much better. And that's one of those things I think technology could help with. Like, could you imagine, again, technology, just one thing that just kind of sorts it in the best way possible that takes that human, that. Mm. that human error out of it? Yes, because I was at the Ferry Building today Uh and met up with a friend for lunch, and we got our lunch from out the door. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, we were at the bins, and I was like, okay, well, is the bowl compost or is it recyclable? (laughs) But then is the lid compost, you know, because I don't know. Making those decisions. Right. Everybody's doing that. You're like, Mm -hmm. oh, what do I put in? Right. A bottle, I know what to do. Right. right. Exactly. And then it's the thing of, you know, is the lid, is this plastic, or is it that plastic? looking product mm-hmm. that's made from corn potato or whatever or corn, yeah, yeah and that's compost or it's but then you also hear that the you know people spend the extra money and buy those products and find out that their city can't right, process right, them properly. Right, right. Yeah. So in Chicago we throw all of our recycling in the same container and oh. I do it religiously and I never once think it's all gonna be recycled. Uh-huh. Oh wow. Is it supposedly sorted later? Somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere in Indiana. Yeah. It's sorted. Yeah. So first they move to do, Indiana. You should do an article on that. You should go track it down and see <laughs> if it's actually getting sorted. Or you just don't want to know. <laughs> I mean. But you do want to know, No, right? I mean, they actually have cameras saying, oh, no, like this. But I, uh, to your point, if technology could do something right. to help with recycling, with mm-hmm. compost. Right. To help make compost more accessible to people. Right. Because... You guys are in one of the few cities where it's citywide yeah, and, and it's mandatory. It's yeah. just part and parcel mm-hmm. of what you do. You know, I, I always remember one of my first days as a cook and I was chopping apples and I was cutting a giant square out mm-hmm. of the center. Mm-hmm. And my sous chef came up to me with like a small little scoop, mm-hmm. like a melon baller, and yeah. said, like a Parisian yeah. scoop. And said, all right, here's my waste. Here's your waste. Mm. Uh, 
what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Oh, I always think about that. You know, it's like the there's certain reprimands from your chef mm -hmm. early as I a have, cook that I have never one. leave your brain. Mm -hmm. I have one just like that that I'll never forget. I'm at the Gavroche, and they, um, they put you in to, to start off as an apprentice. You're cooking for stuff. And I have something like rainbow chard that they gave me. And so I'm picking the leaves off. <laughs> oh, my right. God. And I'm taking the stems and throwing them in the garbage. Mm. Picking them up, throwing them in the garbage. And I get the leaves all nice and apart. And Albert comes walking over to me. He says, where's the stems? Oh, they're in the garbage. He made me take them out, wash them. He went and got an onion, chopped them up, chopped those up, sauteed them off, made a bechamel, and creamed them together, and put cheese over it. And he took the time to show me. This is a three-star Michelin chef. Mm -hmm. Went there and showed me this dish, what I can do with this. With the That's expensive. great, though. That's yeah. good education. And that was... Oh my God. And you remember it. I'll never forget it. Yeah. The other thing I'll never forget. And then he threw a pan at you. <laughs> he never, Albert never threw anything at me. He, he, he would scare you just by looking at you. Yeah. And he was, what's five two. And the other wow. thing he used to do on a daily basis, he would go outside and we had the big, large cans that you had to literally step up to throw things in. Mm. And then you imagine this guy, mm -hmm. and he would get something to step on and he'd look through it mm. to oh show that we weren't wasting anything. Mm. Our visions was that we would lose the our chef one day, fall no, in he's gonna fall and in. literally <laughs> drown in garbage. Yeah. And we're like, oh, but that's what he did to make us realize yeah. you don't waste anything. That's and good. that's how, and that's how I was educated. It's a good teacher. Very much so. Very good. So one of the other things that you said, Chandra, was um, about issues that food professionals need to take head on is discussing the realities of limiting immigration and the impact on the food supply and restaurant industry. And, and I think that obviously that is just an amazing thing to talk about. So, so talk about that for, for just a few minutes. I think it's very odd that amid this national conversation about immigration, that restaurants collectively don't have a stronger voice to say, hi, we depend on this. And like newsflash guys, there are farms that are going out of business now because they can't bring in the labor that was there to, hmm. to plant and to harvest produce to take care of it. And as well, you go into, I mean, you guys don't need me to tell you, you go into any restaurant and immigrants are, you know, getting shit done. But do but, you think that's part of the problem that my restaurateurs do not get up and say anything because they don't want ice right in their restaurant? Hmm. I mean, it could well be. It absolutely could. And I, I also, I struggle with the fact of, of making that point, but without inadvertently making the point that that is all those immigrants should be able to do mm. or something. So, you know, I travel around the country quite a bit and I've been in very conservative places where people don't vote the same way I do. Mm. And I just say, okay, well, who do you think, you know, you, you outsource all of this labor if you're just a, you know, regular consumer living your life but you're able to do that, who do you think is going to take these jobs? Because if you look at our economy right now, we don't have enough people to take the jobs. So if there are people who want to come to America and are saying, hey, I have this work ethic and I have a family I want to send money to, whatever it is, I really genuinely don't see the problem here. 
Well, I think they worry more about what the complexion of the country is looking like, more so than who's taking these jobs. That is more of a mm. presence for them, for mm. those people, because mm -hmm. as soon as they feel that these people who come in, as soon as they are able to be here legally, they will vote for a party that they don't vote for. Hmm. And they feel that the country is going to change to something that they didn't know what it, they grew up in. And that's why you can't explain to those people as an immigrant who's come over here and has worked in this country and never taken anything out of the country. And as a country has given me everything I've ever had. I believe I've given a lot to this country with my restaurants, my food, employment, taxes. Mm -hmm. I don't understand that. It makes this country stronger the more people you bring into this country with diverse ideas, diverse upbringings, diverse mentality. I just think it makes this country a stronger country, and I will always push for that. 100%. 100%. And I do think, I mean, there is like that weird irony that someone will literally sit over a plate of tacos and tell you how yeah. bad immigration is. And I'm just like, okay, right. well, then you don't get any tacos, right. my friend. Right. You may have right. white bread. And right, and mayonnaise. mayonnaise. Right, yeah. exactly. Although, no, but what that's food much, is so no. what food is traditionally American food? Every single food, apart from Native American food, yeah, I was gonna say is Native from American another food. country. Right, right. right. And we so they can't have that conversation. We push right. Native Americans out of their own spaces yeah. so and rob Damn them casinos. of their country. So what are we doing here? I mean, yeah. and that gets into that whole question of, you know, what is American food? I mean, I'm... I'm first generation American. My mother is Irish. My mm. father was Indian. Mm. I grew up in Kentucky. Not a whole lot of Irish Indians mm -hmm. there. It was pretty much mm -hmm. just me and my brothers. And it's funny because people say, okay, well, what's, what's American? And I'm like, well, I mean, I think we're pretty American. Mm -hmm. My yeah, parents actually made the you know the choice to become Americans. Yeah. My mom became a U.S. citizen because she was so mad she couldn't vote for Jimmy Carter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I became a U.S. citizen, and the first person I got to vote for was Barack Obama. That's oh, awesome. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. I was so lucky. Yeah. I mean, well done. Yes, and it's only been down since. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yes. So it is, it is confusing to me because I will get communications from restaurant organizations and unions making kind of very bland blanket statements mm. about immigration. And everyone is towing this line. It's weird to me that we are an industry that is utterly dependent upon immigration to keep functioning. And even separate from that, our entire country's food source is dependent upon that. I mean, I do think that farm subsidies and that also need to be looked at, mm. but it's also just like, hey, maybe if you live here and you're in a position where you can complain that, what about all these other people that you were just born into a, a good position mm -hmm. and right. you should stop complaining that somebody else might get a benefit. Right. No, absolutely. And I, and I think that the unique thing about this, this industry is that we work shoulder to shoulder with people of all different 
backgrounds and nationalities and genders and sexual preferences. And it's very, you know, even even from, from dishwasher to general manager, it's still a blue collar industry in, in many, many ways with just such a good perspective of not, you know, being, I think, uh, just with one kind of person. So I think it, you know, it, it helps you see, you know, that the people who have your back are mm. not just, you know, one kind of person, you know, which I think is always nice. Yeah, I think that it's there's a point that I think maybe too often people say, oh, like, so, you know, so many people end up in the restaurant industry and they forget that so many people get the opportunity Absolutely. to work and they get the opportunity to see something they're good at mm-hmm. by being in the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. even if it's just learning the discipline of showing up and doing this work of the times when you're talking about servers having to be on because of course they do because the first thing you know you get a server who's mad because they just got into a fight with their significant other or something mm-hmm. like that and they're taking it out on the table you know that's the first thing your customers are going to yelp about mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but if you know the restaurant industry provides so many incredible opportunities and as you say it is absolutely dependent on a complete diversity of gender, of sexual orientation, of race, of ethnicity, of so many things. So I would love to see more people in the industry feel comfortable enough to be able to be outspoken about that. We can evolve enough to realize that it doesn't matter what you're made up of, except just don't be an asshole. You know, because that kind of transcends everything, right? Just like, don't be an asshole. yeah, just don't be an asshole, and and you know, everything else doesn't really matter. You know, so just don't be an asshole. That's that's my number one golden rule. So now's the time to ask a couple of fears, because it's always fun to go out on fears. If you could think of two fears that you have, and they don't have to be about anything particular that we've talked about, they can be about anything in the world, and. It looks like we're going to start with you. Okay. So one wow. fear. Let's, okay. let's give us a fear. You know, we've been talking about immigration. We've been talking about food waste, some of which also we didn't directly talk about climate change, but some of that all sort of is connected. And I find it, I know this is bland. I mean, I'm, I'm terrified of, of snakes and birds, but I think climate change is absolutely terrifying Mm. you know i'm in san francisco and it's lovely here i was in chicago yesterday and it was a gorgeous fall day but three days prior it was snowing sideways in october (laughs) meanwhile my mother in kentucky was telling me trick-or-treating had been canceled for hail we had never heard of any apocalypse right right and so there are things that you know we're here and David, you live in Sonoma, and mm-hmm. it's so we're recording this right as the Kincaid mm, fires right. have, I think, gotten 70%. Well, it's at 75% containment mm. that, as we speak. I just had a whole week of no electricity. Mm. We moved up there the year after the fires that were there in Paradise, mm-hmm. which was near to Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. It moved all the way to Sonoma yeah. and to Glen Helen, moved over to Napa. 
And so we can still see the remnants of those mm-hmm. fires. And this one has come hard and quickly on its heels. Mm. And so there are huge issues. Yeah. Fearless leader wants us to go out and rake the forests as if that's going to work. But it's climate change. Things. It's hotter. It's drier. Yeah. And these things are getting worse. Yeah. They're not getting better. And so we need to change our ways and how we do, we do business and how we run as a as a society. Get away from that phosphorus fuels and that are going up there and and causing problems for us. Mm-hmm. If I may, I am terrified that America is going to reelect Donald Trump. Oh. I think oh. that he has divided our country, mm. and mm-hmm. you know, there's the media will talk about oh presidential norms, but. I think Not it's anymore. more helpful to say that he is the leader of a group of people who would rather tear society apart mm. and destroy people's lives in an effort to, I don't know, get a break on their taxes mm. or feel better about something that's never going to. I, I think it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. I think that he has done immeasurable damage mm-hmm. and... I think we need like five Obamas in a row. <laughs> and yeah. I will say that Obama in particular looks spectacularly uninterested <laughs> in yeah. going back to the job. I agree with you. I have that fear, but having been born elsewhere, been in this country now 31 years, I look at it for, as an outsider as well as an insider. And one of the things, the beauty of America is that it, no matter what mistakes it makes, it tends to correct them eventually. And I think this one will be corrected. I don't know if it'll be corrected in the next election. No, oh, I hope so. I, you hope so, mm. but it will be corrected. This country always corrects itself. Mm. Look at the history. And what I know, I just want it to happen in our lifetimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Exactly, and, and it may not happen because they have all the judges now. So mm-hmm. that's what is more of a problem than him. So They have I, the, all these conservative judges there for the next 20, 25 mm. years. Oh so that's, that's problematic. Is us. that your second fear, David? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's it's gone. It's beyond what we can do. We we woke up too late to this. Yeah. When this was ongoing, and uh, we had Obama there, we thought everything was right. Mm-hmm. We thought the country was had moved beyond this, mm-hmm. and we slept at the wheel. We really did. We we were, you know, we were all in this kumbaya moment with Obama, which. I, I, I understand because I was in that movement. Mm-hmm. And when someone like this came in, I was like, there's no way this person's going to be elected. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And then it happened. 100%. And I remember watching the Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock sitting there and they come in and, and Chris Rock goes, hey, what's up with all the white people? And they was like, yeah, they don't believe he's going to be in. And just seeing how things changed and people of color realize, yeah, this shit happens all the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. You just got to deal with it mm. and, and make the best out of it and move on. Mm. On that note. Also birds and snakes. Scary <laughs> <laughs> movies. So thank you too. This was a great conversation. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I learned some stuff. Matt, thanks for Talk inviting me. Stuff. I enjoyed thank this. Thank you so much. Yeah. If you want to shout out to Chandra Rem, you can check her out at Chandra's Plate. Or at Plate Magazine on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, if you want to shout out to David, give him a shout at David at blackbark.com. B A R K. So thanks so much, you two, and I hope to see you again soon. 
Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.